Father, I pray that once again, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are a number of things in Scripture that we wish were clearer for us. We read passages, we look at things, we, we hear, we read, compare passages, and it seems like there are so many times where we'd like a definitive answer and we don't always get a definitive answer. There are, there's tension and there are, there are ways of explaining things that cause us to think, okay, is it this or is it this? Is it both ends? Is it something else? And we wrestle with those things. And quite frankly, there's a fair amount of that in Scripture. But there, is, there are some things in Scripture that are crystal clear. And one of those things in Scripture that's crystal clear is that sin is a problem for everybody. Sin is a problem for everyone. Just do a, a perusal of Scripture, Old and New Testament, and you see that before us over and over again. So, for instance, we read in Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Or in Romans 3, verse 11, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one that seeks God. All have turned away. There's no one who does good, not even one. And later in that same chapter, passage that we may have memorized as children, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a problem for everyone. Scripture is crystal clear about that. And the, and the myth that I want to address today is not that that is wrong because it's perfectly true and we're all walking, living examples of its truth. But as, as I've said to you said to you a couple of weeks ago, all of these myths that we're talking about are not completely false. Rarely are we, are we led astray by things that are 100% false. But it just gets turned a little bit. And I think there's an essence to this idea that all of us struggle with sin that I think we turn just a little bit. And it's the, it's the myth that I would say is this. All sins are equal in the eyes of God. Now, there is a way in which all sins are equal to God in the fact that all sin separates us from God. All sin creates problems between us and God and us and other people. In that sense, that it's true. But there is a sense in which when you read the Scriptures, you find that there are some, some ways in which some things about sin turn us away from God in a way that other things may not. And I want to just have us think about that for a little bit this morning. When you come to the 12th chapter of Matthew's gospel, you get this series of stories and teachings that I think are all connected. Sometimes when we read Scripture, we have a tendency 
to look at things. One of the problems with Bibles, they give us headings, and even the chapters and verses sometimes can do that, where we think that, that, there's all, that these are separate ideas, but I think the original writers were, were helping, trying to help us see that they have connections, and I think we see that in chapter 12. It starts out with the story of the disciples going through a field. They're hungry. They haven't eaten. And so they begin to pick some, some grain off of the stalks that they pass. And when the Pharisees hear about it, they're very upset. Now, they're not upset because the disciples are taking grain from somebody else's field. That's a common practice. In that culture, if you were hungry and you were walking through someone's field, you had the right to take off some grain in order to, to address your hunger. That was, that was common. Their problem is that the disciples do this on the Sabbath. That's what upsets them. And Jesus gives them this, this lesson in the Sabbath in the Old Testament. And he comes to the end of that. And he says in verse 8, Don't you know that, the, I, that I am the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath? And for Jesus to make that statement is to say... I am the Lord who created the Sabbath. And that goes all the way back to Genesis. And if you're Lord of the one who created the Sabbath, you're Lord of creation. And if you're Lord of creation, you're the Lord of everything. And for Jesus to say that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath is for him to say, I am the Lord, the King, the Creator, and the one who rules over all. And every story and every teaching in the rest of the chapter is, keeps coming back to that idea. So in the next story, when Jesus heals the man in the temple, and he does it on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees again are upset with him, what he's declaring is, I am Lord. And there is something about that idea that, in a sense, encapsulates the gospel. That Jesus is Lord. It was the very first uh, creed of the early church. Jesus is Lord. Everything comes back to that. Jesus is Lord. And when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, as we did last week, really it boils down to acknowledging, accepting, embracing the idea, the fact that Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. And what Paul means to the Romans is, as opposed to, Caesar is Lord. That's why C.S. Lewis says, our problem is not that we're imperfect people that need to be improved. Our problem is we are rebels who need to throw down our arms. And to declare, Jesus is the king, not us. And sometimes, sometimes we want to think about being a Christian as sort of this mindset of, I'd like a dollar's worth of God, and that'll do me just fine. You know, when I was young, when you pull into a service station, and in those days they didn't have self-serve, you pull into a service station, and the attendant would walk out to your car, you'd roll out the window, and he says, what do you want? And you might say, fill her up. But when you're a high school student that barely can scrape together a few coins, he comes to you, what do you want? I'd say, give me a dollar's worth. Which now would be like, I don't even know how to turn the hose on for a dollar's worth. <laughs> you know, you go, okay, you're good. 
But about, you know, years ago it meant something. But, you know, there's a certain sense of that's all I can afford. That's all I want. That's all I'm interested in right now. And there's something in us that says, I want to be a Christian just enough. How, how little can I follow Jesus and still get into heaven? How close to the edge can I live and still be okay? There's something in the back of our minds that wants to live that way. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Because to be a follower of Jesus is to declare with our mouths, our attitudes, our actions, everything about us, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of all, and he's Lord right here in every one of us. Jesus is Lord. And it's not just the fact that we say, okay, we believe Jesus is Lord, but it's also how is Jesus Lord? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? It means that the kingdom is designed the way Jesus declares it. That the poor in spirit are blessed. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, it's about having the mind of Christ that gives up everything in surrender and sacrifice and love. The thing about Jesus being Lord is that we're not declaring him as Lord, this being that is hesitant to give mercy, that we have to trick or cajole or plead or beg with to do anything good for us. He is is God in flesh, the God who loves to give good gifts to his children, the God who sets us free, the God who forgives sin, the God who has promised us eternal life and flourishing in this life. This is the one to whom we declare, you are Lord. And the problem that the Pharisees have is that they don't want to declare Jesus as Lord. And so you come to the verses 31 and 32, and you have this, this strange, maddening, confusing, frightening thing that Jesus says about the unpardonable sin. If you grew up in the church, there was always some moment in time where these verses were sort of thrown at us and, and, and used as a means of, of frightening us into the kingdom. You don't want to commit the unpardonable sin. Nobody knew what that was, but you just didn't want to do it. And it's a way of sort of holding pressure on us. And here's the interesting thing, that Jesus says, not blasphemy against him can't be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I would have certainly expected Jesus to say, blasphemy against me, but he doesn't. It's the Holy Spirit. And I think that's because Jesus tells us in John's gospel and other places, and Paul reiterates this, that the Spirit is the one that helps us understand who Jesus is. The Spirit is the one that convicts us of sin. The Spirit is the one that draws us to God. The Spirit is the one that speaks into our hearts. The Spirit is the one that fills us with the love of Christ. It's the Spirit 
that we interact with, particularly now when Jesus is no longer walking the earth as he did in the pages of Scripture. And the, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders just can't see it. In fact, they are so lost and they are so blind and they are so, so unwilling that when Jesus casts out the demon, they say Jesus' power comes from the demonic and not from the spirit. And what they do is they turn everything on its head. So that in essence, what they're saying is it's the evil one who releases people from sin. It's the evil one that sets people free. It's the evil one that does all the good in the world instead of God. And you, find, you just step back and you say, how in the world could they say that? They would rather lose their souls than to admit that Jesus is Lord. No wonder Jesus says, there's a place in your life there's a, there's a mindset, there's an attitude that God can't do anything with. There is a hardness of heart toward Jesus and toward the Spirit that Jesus is describing here. And the problem is the hardening of our hearts is always an escalating thing. It's always something that starts with one no to the Spirit but leads to another no to the Spirit, and another no, and another, and another, and another, until all of a sudden we wake up and find ourselves in a place we could never have imagined. But the opposite is also true. A yes to the Spirit leads to more and more yeses of the Spirit, and we wake up and find ourselves in this life of glorious flourishing because the Spirit controls us, because Jesus is Lord of all things and Lord of our lives. And it's this escalating thing that the, that the Pharisees and the religious leaders keep coming back to until you get to the point where they have said no to the Spirit so often that when they stand before Pilate, these people who have given their lives to the study of the Torah, these people who have given their lives to in saying that they are followers of Yahweh, stand before Pilate and declare, we have no king but Caesar. How do you get to that place? By continually pushing the spirit away. By continually saying, I don't want to have anything to do with that. By continually denying, not so much with our words or even in our minds, but with our attitudes and the spirit in which we live of saying, I just can't come to the place where I'm going to let Jesus be Lord. And the Pharisees are there. And Jesus gives us this warning about us as well. See, we often think that, that this, this sin that Jesus is describing is, is a particular action. It, it's something specific. And if I were to say to you, all right, let's take a poll. What do you think the sin is? I suspect that something would come to our minds. Maybe it's some kind of hidden sin. Maybe it's a sexual sin. Maybe it's something that, that maybe particularly other people wrestle with more than we do. 
Maybe it's something we wrestle with that we feel like God's never going to let, it, let that one be forgiven. But it's not a particular sin. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. The problem with, having, with it being a particular sin is that when we feel that way, then we can say to ourselves, okay, if that's the sin, then I haven't done that, so I'm okay. Or we say, I can commit any sins I want to as long as I stay away from that one, and I'm okay. And you see the problem. Because the problem is, that's not thinking about Jesus being Lord. That's thinking about how much can I get away with and still have myself on the throne of my life and the world. It's interesting to me that, that um, when you get just past this, these words about the blasphemy of the Spirit, Jesus says to them, you remember the people of Nineveh? The Assyrians, you all remember them. I'm telling you, they're going to be in better shape eternally than you guys are. Wow. The Assyrians are some of the most brutal people in all the ancient Near East. They are notorious for their heinous behavior and for their brutality and the things that they do to people. And, and Israel has been the recipient of their brutality numerous times through its history. But what's in Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And what's fascinating is that when you look back at the story, Jonah tells us that despite all that they've done, it just takes one unwilling prophet to walk through town saying the end is near, and they're on their faces in repentance before God. And yet Jesus comes, and day after day, and week after week, and month after month, and year after year, stands before the religious leaders and declares the kingdom of God in all of its clarity, and they say, he has a demon. We don't want to have anything to do with him. It's our attitude. It's our desire. And so Jesus says, he tells these parables, and he says, okay, which one is worse? The prodigal son who says to his father, I hope you're, I wish you would die, but then comes back and falls before his father in repentance? Or is it the elder son who stays there, everybody thinks he's awesome, and yet rejects his father? Jesus says, who's better? In another story, the, the son that thumbs his nose at his father and says, I'm not doing anything you want, and the later comes back and does exactly what his father wants, or the son who stays there and lies to his father's face and doesn't do what he says he's going to do. Jesus says to them, which one is worse, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the people you call sinners who are embracing Jesus and can't get to Jesus fast enough, or the people who keep the law perfectly? And yet keep pushing Jesus away and rejecting him. It's, it comes down to, I think it comes down to idolatry. You know, the great sin of humanity really comes back to idolatry. Something is more important than God is. It's Israel's downfall. 
And we look at, the, we read their stories and we think, well, you know, we don't set up statues and worship and do that kind of thing. But we still struggle with putting things before God. And somehow in our minds, we have come to believe that these things are going to bring to us life and hope and flourishing instead of God. And Andy Crouch says in one of his books that the problem, one of the great problems with idolatry is that it always leads to injustice. Idolatry, which is sin against God, always leads to injustice, sin against others. And that really is at the heart of God's great concern here because it's this whole issue of their hard-heartedness is not just about their relationship with God, but it's how they're representing God to other people who don't know who God is. God creates us to be image bearers. He calls Israel to bear the, his image to the nations around them so that they will look at Israel and say, that's what God looks like, we want that. And he calls the church to the same thing. And our, our idolatry and our hard-heartedness toward the Spirit creates a, a skewed image of who God is. Just as the, as the Pharisees say, oh, Jesus is doing this by the demonic, we can send messages to people that are just as destructive to their understanding of who God is. I think there's a, there's a sense that this whole dynamic of, of not all the sins are equal before God is that, again, it's not just what it does to us, but what it does to other people. I was thinking about what Jesus says in the Gospels, and it's recorded in all of the three synoptic Gospels. It, it says, in essence, to, in each of those places, if you cause people to stumble, you'd be better off to have a millstone tied around your neck and you be thrown into the middle of the sea. Wow. Jesus doesn't say that about anything else. And in Matthew's gospel, he says this right after the story of the children that are coming to see Jesus. And the disciples say, Jesus doesn't care about children. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says this right after the disciples come to Jesus and say, I know we've been messing up a lot lately. We've been missing things, but we got something right today. And Jesus says, really, what did you get right? And they said, well, we saw some people who were casting out demons in your name, but they weren't a part of our group. So we told them they better stop that. And I just see Jesus going, oh, my word. That's probably when he thought to himself or he said, what am I going to do with this generation? And he says to them, if you cause people who are passionate about me, even if they don't quite understand all of it, but their hearts are turned to me, even if it looks different than the way your hearts turn to me, don't do that to them. Don't discourage them. And in Luke's gospel, he just simply says, if you cause anybody to stumble, there's a seriousness to this about our walk and our witness. It makes me think of a marriage ceremony. You know, there, there's, a, there's a part of the marriage ceremony called the pronouncement. And after the couple has said their vows to each other and they put rings on each other's fingers, then the minister says to the congregation that I now want to declare to you that 
that uh, they have now by declaring their vows and by joining of hands and giving of rings, that they are husband and wife in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I always tell couples in premarital counseling, if at that very moment the roof caved in on all of us, you die married. I always try to print the, paint a rosy picture for them as much as possible. I've seen a few of them in the ceremony, and we get to that, kind of look up and look around a little bit, like, what's happening here? But you get, to, you get to that point in the ceremony, and there's one more sentence. You think it's done, but there's one more sentence that I actually didn't think that much about for a long time. But now I think it might be one of the most important things that's said at a wedding. And that last sentence is this. Those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. And what the church realized a long time ago is we need to make sure all the people here understand that if you do anything to harm this relationship, if you do anything to come between this couple, if you do anything to cause this marriage to have problems, God help you. It's that serious. And I don't think we take seriously enough how passionately God cares about how we treat other people and about our witness. But here's the honest truth. You can't be a witness for God if Jesus isn't Lord. We're always going to get in the way. And I know we're always going to struggle. Sin is always going to be something we wrestle with. But it's that passion, it's that yearning, it's that desire deep within us that we want Jesus to be Lord. That our desire and our yearning is that Jesus would be Lord and we declare that he's Lord of all exactly the way he designs his lordship. Not the way we design it, but the way he designs it. And we embrace that with everything that we can. We can. And even when we fall short and in the moments where we don't measure up and we, and we get wrapped up in our own sinfulness and self-interest, when the Spirit comes and says, convicts us of that, our first response is to say, Lord, have mercy. I see it. Forgive me. When we have that kind of mindset, we have to worry about what Jesus is warning here. Because we just simply want our lives to be controlled by the Lordship of Christ. That's our passion. That's our desire. That's our yearning. That we would have the mind of Christ. That's the calling of the Spirit upon every one of us. To have that kind of heart, that sensitivity to the Spirit. I don't think we're ever in more danger spiritually than when we come to the place of thinking that we have arrived. Because to say we've arrived is to say, I don't. I think I've gotten to the place where I'm so good, I'm not sure I really need Jesus anymore. We're never in more danger 
in that moment. Brendan Manning says in one of his books, many of us only pretend to be sinners. And consequently, the only thing we can do is to pretend that we are forgiven. It's really what Lewis is saying in Mere Christianity in that famous quote that he says, in the end, there are just two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. And the difference between those two things is eternal. Holy Father, we pray that you will have mercy on us in such a way that if there are things that are, that are blocking you in us, of us hearing the Spirit and being sensitive to the Spirit, being a witness for the Spirit, Father, speak to us in your merciful grace. Forgive us. Forgive us that we might know the joy of the Spirit in us. Through Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.